Our Old Testament lesson this morning is found in 1 Kings. We're going to be reading verses 4 through 31. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by, having, by, ha- by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man. He was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab the son of Zariah and with Abiathar the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shimei and Ray and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent's stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah the son of Haggith has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then, while you're still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now, behold... Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, do not know it. He sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, he's not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And they told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he's gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they're eating and drinking before him, saying, Long live King Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king? And have you not told your servants who would sit on the throne of my king, my lord the king, after him? Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, 
as the Lord lives, who's redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my Lord King David live forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come to 1 Kings anticipating that you will open our eyes to see wonderful things in this portion of your scriptures. So we ask that you would do that. Reveal your gospel to us here in 1 Kings 1. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the movie Finding Nemo, Marlon, who's a fish looking for his lost son Nemo, hence the name Finding Nemo, is joined by a forgetful fish named Dory. Now, Dory suffers from short-term memory loss, which means she can barely remember things for even a few seconds. Now, on this quest to find Nemo, Marlon and Dory run into a great white shark named Bruce. Now, Bruce, you would expect, would eat these little fish. He doesn't. He takes them to his downed ship and to his friend's anchor and chum, and he reveals that they are rehabilitated sharks. They, they no longer eat fish. In fact, their mantra is, fish are friends, not food. And through a series of events, Dory gets hit in the nose with a pair of scuba goggles. And just a small drop of blood enters into the water. And when Bruce smells the blood in the water, this seemingly gentle giant returns to his base instincts. His gentle blue eyes gloss over black. And as much as his friends try to restrain him and remind him that fish are friends, they're not food, he rushes down the corridor of the ship after Marlin and Dory as they flee this giant shark. Now the fish find themselves safely, albeit temporarily, in a locked room with Bruce on the other side of the door, smashing against it to get his next meal. And as they search for a way out, Dory sees a wheel. And on that wheel are words. And she realizes she can read. So she begins to read, Escape. I wonder what that means. It's funny, it's spelled just like escape. Now you see, friends, being able to read well would have totally changed their situation. It would have totally changed the whole scenario for them. And as we come to these first chapters of Kings, it's crucial, it's critical that we know how to read well. Because over the next six weeks, we're going to follow the rise and the fall of King Solomon with all of his complication and all of his controversy. In these chapters, we read history. History of the third king of Israel, the wisest of Israel's kings, the most successful of Israel's kings who built the temple and the palace. But from the beginning, it's crucial to recognize that by reading this history, we're not just reading a chronological series of events. No, or originally, 
This was designated not as history, but as prophecy. It's a prophetic telling of history. It's history from human perspective, but seen through the lens of God. It's designed to do something to us. It's it's given a prophetic purpose. And that prophetic purpose is to teach us about God's works in the world and about our place in that world. But for a book that focuses on the works of God, we'd expect that God would be front and center here at the beginning of Kings. But in 1 Kings, God actually, 1 Kings 1 at least, God actually takes a back seat. He's almost not mentioned at all. In fact, it focuses entirely on the actions and the voices of men and women as they vie for the throne of David. Now this is important, not because of a lack of reference for God, but because it reveals a basic assumption behind this, ch- this chapter and behind the whole of kings in general. It assumes that God is the author of the story. It assumes that God is the artist weaving together the threads of history into a beautiful tapestry for his own glory and for the good of his people. So what's 1 Kings 1 teach us about God's ways in the world and about our place in it. We're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to first look at the mystery of God's works. Then we're going to look at the means of God's plan. And then lastly, we'll observe the logic of God's favor. First, we see the mystery of God's works. When we arrive in 1 Kings, a question ripples throughout Israel. Who's in charge? Who's going to sit on David's throne when he dies? Who's going to make Israel great again? Is the question they would be asking. But as the story unfolds, we see that controversy surrounds the king's house. Verses 1 through 4, we're told that King David was old in verse 1, and he was advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes... He could not get warm. This once vigorous and vibrant king is now feeble and frail. And not only that, he's failed to announce his successor. So Israel is left to question. And verses 5 to 10 tell us that in that power vacuum, Adonijah stages a coup. And he arrogantly proclaims, I will be king Now he's handsome. He looks like a king. He's ambitious and talks like a king. He acts like a king and gathers horses and chariots and throws a party to celebrate the success of his supposed coup. Now all this makes really great political sense. But he's still staging a coup against his father. Verses 11 through 27 reveal that behind closed doors... Nathan and Bathsheba hatch another plan. And this plan is to manipulate the decrepit king, to take advantage of his decline, and to set up Solomon in his place. The picture we're painted is incredibly complicated. The decline of a king, a usurping prince, a manipulative wife, a jaded prophet. Y'all, this is the stuff of... Netflix, not the stuff of the Bible that we would expect. 
but it's there. Even with all the chaos and the manipulation, one common mysterious thread holds them all together. The mysterious providence of God to maintain his kingdom. God is at work over and against, beyond and even through human compromise to sustain his kingdom. His work is certainly mysterious. And at no point is the mystery of God's work seen more clearly than on the cross of Jesus. At the cross, the Jews sought to silence this self-proclaimed God-man. It was at the cross that Pilate sought to placate the Jews and to keep the peace in that little corner of the Roman Empire. And it was at the cross that Satan sought to thwart God's plan. But in a providential turn of events, God redeems the world through the suffering of the second Adam. And he set up the eternal son of David on his proper throne. And he continues to mysteriously work in the church. Because let's be honest, the church is full of conflict and compromise. We're full of chaos and conflict, often throughout the ages living on the edge of disaster. But God mysteriously works through people and through circumstances to maintain his kingdom, to sustain his church. So friends, you can take heart. Your confidence doesn't rest in your ability to get things right. Confidence doesn't rest in your ability even to know God's plan. Your confidence rests in a God who uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines, who works beyond and through human beings to accomplish his will. So we see the mystery of God's works. And then secondly, we see the means of God's plan. Remember, one of the primary questions that undergirds this passage in the whole book of Kings is, who's going to rule Israel? Who will God choose to sustain his kingdom? Now, this question was certainly on the front of the first readers of the book of Kings. These first readers were Israelites and Judites who had been captured by foreign armies and they had been taken off into Assyria and into Babylon. They were in captivity and slavery. And they were asking, is God going to sustain us? Who's in charge? And when that question is asked of David and all the eyes of Israel are on him, David tells us in verses 29 and 30, he said, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so, I will do this day. See, David had promised Bathsheba that Solomon would be his heir, that Solomon would be the one to sit on his throne. And this promise recalls a deeper promise, a promise that had been made to David back in 2 Samuel 7. It was there in 2 Samuel 7 that David engages with God, and God makes a covenant with David. And in that covenant, God binds himself to David and made a promise 
to establish his kingdom and his throne forever. And in verse, 40, uh, in verse 48, David gives credit to God for setting up Solomon on his throne. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. So David's interpretation is that this is God working out his plan. Solomon sitting on the throne at the end of chapter 1 is the initial outworking of that promise to David. And by the end of the book of Kings in 2 Kings 25, Jehoiada, he's the king who lost the kingdom. All Israel is banished. They, Judah has been conquered. Jerusalem has been sieged. But this son of David isn't dead. And in fact, he's not even in slavery. He sits at the table of the king of Babylon, reminding God's people in captivity that the means of God's plan is always to work according to his promises. So that begs the question, what are God's promises for you? What are God's promises for me? What are his promises to his church? If he makes promises in his covenants, what are they? Jeremiah 31, 32, and Ezekiel 36 tell us of a new covenant. And we know that this new covenant has been established in Jesus. And by virtue of our union with Christ, God promises in this covenant, this new covenant, to remove our heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh, to make us sensitive to his leading and his guiding. He promises to put his spirit within us, to give us power to obey him, to follow in his ways. And he promises to forgive our sins, to cast off our iniquities. Not only that, he promises to be God to us and to our children after us. And in Jeremiah 32, there's this intriguing line it says that God, that he will do good to us. In fact, it says he delights in doing good to us. Y'all, this is the means of God's plan. He has bound himself to these promises. And he's working out his plan through those promises in accordance with them. Have you ever seen the backside of a woven tapestry? If you were to go to a, an art museum and flip over a woven tapestry, what you would find on the back side is just jumbled mess. It seems chaotic, right? It's, there are, there's strings hanging. Some strings are tied to other strings. You might be able to make out some colors here and there, but they're all woven together, and you might be able to make out some shapes, but if you, turp, if you flip it over, you would notice a beautiful woven piece of, art, of artwork. It's a masterpiece. Friends, often when we're looking at our lives, when we're looking out into the world, what we often see is the backside of history. We are looking at the mysteries of God's works and we don't always understand why or how they're playing out the way they are. But if we were to flip it over, what we see 
is a beautiful masterpiece. God working out his plan according to his promises. The promises that he's made to us in Jesus. And God's promise is to do good to you. Your task is to trust that there's a masterpiece on the other side of your chaos. Your task is to let go of control and to believe that God is doing good to you, to trust that though you find yourself in incredibly difficult circumstances and situations, God's promise is to be your God, to be God to your children, and to do good to you. So we see the mystery of God's works and the means of God's plan. Lastly, we see the logic of God's favor. As we read this story of Solomon, another question arises. Why Solomon? Right? Why Solomon? Why did David make an oath to Bathsheba in verse 30 that Solomon would sit on his throne? Why do all the people rejoice in verse 39, chanting, long live King Solomon? He's not the oldest son. He's not the best looking son. And frankly, his origin story at best is problematic. He's the son of a murderous king and an adulterous wife. So naturally we ask, why Solomon What's the logic behind God's favor? Paul puts this logic into words in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. In 1 Kings 1, what we see is a young boy enthroned as king whose mom had to go to bat for him in order to gain the throne. But we also see in verses 49 to 53 that after hearing the celebratory trumpet and that Solomon was anointed king, that the guests of Adonijah trembled and they rose and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. In fact, he feared him so much that he went to the altar and grabbed the horns of the altar believing that he was safe there, safe from the repercussions of his coup. The political powerhouse held no sway over the favor of God. And y'all, God's been doing this sort of thing throughout history. He chose Jacob, the weakling, over Esau, the hunter. He chose Joseph, the baby dreamer, over his older brother's And he chose David, the forgettable shepherd boy from Bethlehem, over all the sons of Jesse. What was so spectacular about that boy, David, was that he was so unspectacular. He was the youngest. He was forgettable. He was just a boy keeping watch over his sheep when God decided to place his favor on him and send Samuel to anoint him king of Israel while there was still a king on the throne. He was fairly unspectacular. And in Jesus Christ, God reveals again that the weak things of the world shame the strong. Isaiah 53 says that he had no form 
majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And it's this despised and rejected servant who was led like a lamb to the slaughter, pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our, our iniquities. And in his weakness and in his suffering, overcame the wisdom and the strength of this world and he defeated death through death. This is the logic of God's favor. And he continues to work out that logic in you and me. You see, the world assumes that the church is weak and that the church is ultimately insignificant. We hold to archaic beliefs and values. To the world, it's silly to believe in sin, right? Everybody's born basically good. It's silly to believe in God, that someone would create all of this. It's silly that there's an afterlife. All we do is die and and our bodies become part of the world. And certainly it's silly, if not foolish, to believe that somebody can get out of the grave. But it's this church, you and me, God's people, that God uses to shame the strong in the face of academic challenge, of moral decline, in the face of political upheaval, And in justice, Christ continues to storm the gates of hell with his church. The church continues to move forward in all of its weakness, even when the mightiest of nations crumbles. That's God's logic. He uses the weak to shame the strong. I'll close with this. uh, A few weeks ago, I was watching the college football national championship Surprise, right, that Georgia Bulldog fan would, uh, would watch the national championship game. I saw something that confounded all of my football wisdom. The whole first half, Georgia's quarterback ran around like a confused jackrabbit. He had no idea what he was doing. He was making poor decision after poor decision, bad pass after bad pass. And by halftime, I'm angry texting Chuck. Like, they need to take out this mediocre quarterback and put in the superstar JT Daniels. Like, this is what they need to do. Why does Kirby Smart not listen to me? But as the game went on, the country began to notice something spectacular. Somehow, I'm still not entirely sure, Somehow, this mediocre quarterback, who was at the beginning of the season third string, somehow this mediocre quarterback chopped down one of the greatest dynasties in college football history. (laughs) The weak shamed the strong that Monday night. And y'all, God does something similar in the church. God mysteriously works through complicated people and complicated situations to sustain his people. He works by means of his plan, according to the promises that he's made to you and to me in Jesus Christ. And he does so following the logic of his favor, using the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
So brothers and sisters, trust him. Be confident in him. Because as one commentator put it, the church has repeatedly walked on the edge of disaster. And apparently, there's a hand that sustains her. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do give you thanks that you are so gracious that you our conflict and all of our compromise, all of the controversy that we work in ourselves, you are still at work to graciously lead us and to sustain us in your son. We ask that you would give us faith, faith to trust you, in the face of difficult circumstances, in the face of the chaos of the world and the chaos within, would you give us grace to trust you? We ask in Jesus' name.